What's my most favorite thing to do? To talk. Every week I'll do just that. We'll feature national and international movers and shakers, experts in their fields, and all around interesting people with something more than great to say. No holds barred. We'll tackle every topic imaginable, especially for women over 40. This is Conversations with Sima. Please stay tuned. Welcome. We've just heard snippets of music from the Martha Redbone Roots Project. Martha Redbone was raised in Kentucky and had maternal roots in Virginia and other parts of Appalachia. She absorbed music from many local traditions, African American, Cherokee, Choctaw, English folk music, and many others. Her father had a strong gospel music tradition from North Carolina, and she grew up learning and exploring her Native American roots among Cherokee and Choctaw groups. Martha became a musician and singer, and since coming onto the music scene in 2002 has earned a reputation as a sought-after collaborator, performer, educator, and mentor across North America and abroad, winning many awards and accolades. Her musical theater piece, based on her Appalachian mining family's heritage, the Martha Redbone Roots Project, is touring the country this year and will be performed at St. Joseph's College in West Hartford on March 21, 2017. So welcome, Martha. Hi, Summer. Thanks for having me. So I had recently interviewed author-speaker Rebecca Walker and was really fascinated about the disparate parts of her which interweave themselves in her life. And I was instantly intrigued by the lens that she carries through her life and how she sees the world. And I'm really guessing that you have the same type of threads and was wondering about your own lens. Tell me a little bit about how that's helped you navigate through the world. Well, I was raised by Cherokee and Choctaw grandparents in Appalachia, in a coal mining family in Harlan County, Kentucky, the infamous Harlan County. And then at 11 years old, moved back to New York City and spent my teenage years, preteen and teenage years, back in the city with my mother. And so I feel like the sounds of the mountains and the sounds of the city, you know, the kind of grit and everything, I think it's a combination of sonic qualities that, you know, I incorporate into the music that we make. So I think that really defined everything that I am. I think it's kind of, a, you know, a combination of being a country girl, small town country girl, and a kind of city girl. And so I've had the sophistication of jazz and having everything available from life in a big city. And then as a child, I think the, sim- the simplicity of being from a very small coal mining town is um I don't know I find I find looking back really fortunate 
you know. Very um, fortunate. I think kids in the in in cities, um, you know, they have a different kind of thing. But for me, there is nothing that beats kind of raking leaves and then jumping back in them in piles, going down to the creek and that kind of stuff that you have when you're in a small town. So uh, one of the things that I, when I think about reflecting on the music that we make is I think from being from those hills, Black Mountain, the one thing that I feel and that I have gained um, kind of in subconsciously is a great respect for melody. Tell tell me how that works for you. I think, you know, when you grow up singing, church is a big part of the community in, in these small towns. It's a big place for social gathering, and not only relig- for religious purposes, but just because that's where everybody gathers. You know, you had bake sales, and people made things, and you sold them, and you had meetings, and town meetings, and things like that. So it was a place where people kind of gathered together for every occasion, for anything. And I think that the music came from the church, it came from the hills, it came from, you know, some religions, it came from cultures. And I think the combination of all of these things and life in the hills, strong melodies is what I think has carried me through childhood to adulthood. And then living in New York with the sophistication of jazz and rhythm and blues, also during my time was the kind of development of hip-hop music, rap music, and all of that, and that was a totally different sonic sound. But I think for me, with songwriting, I think I have a great, great respect for melody. So do you feel as if that era is slowly disappearing from the American landscape and is less Mm. tangible for you? Not at all. Not for me. I don't think so. I think that one of the things that makes music, they call that the line that they say music is a universal language, I think it's because of melody. You know, no matter what all the bells and whistles people put on with production, sounds, in whatever style of music that anyone may like, I think at the end of the day, a melody is a melody is a melody. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love mountain hollers. You don't need even need any music right. around you. Have your music, your instrument is my voice. And I can tell a story with my with my voice. And you don't even have to use words. Like in a, a lot of the traditional Choctaw language, it's vocable. You know, it just sounds and sounds of chanting, which don't have words. Yep. And these melodies that we sing are very strong and kind of translate and resonate around the world, no matter where you are in any culture. You know, and there are the throat singers who sing things, and, and we don't know that language, and they're using sounds, and it's magical music. It's really, it really resonates with us who live, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away, and it still touches us. So I really think that melody is a really important human form of communication. So I know for myself, I'm a classical pianist, that doing my own music is my way of staying centered and grounded, and I'm just going to take a guess that that's what this provides you as well. But <laughs> yes? Yes. yes. Yes, absolutely. It's grounded and sane. <laughs> well, okay. So I would be remiss if I did not talk about this time in our lives, although I don't mean to be speaking about the new administration. I really am talking more about the kind of milieu that we live in right now, which seems to be infusing itself into all of my radio shows. So I guess I want to ask you, do you feel a heightened sense of urgency in translating your message to the public? Do you feel a sense of urgency at uh, showing the world your sounds, presenting your show? Is anything changed now in this time of our lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you say a sense of urgency, absolutely. 
and when you say not to you know to avoid um talking about the current state of our country absolutely <laughs> you know i think one of the things one of the most important things with regard to the music that i do and with regard to the piece that we are developing about my family story is the fact that indigenous people are still viewed as being invisible or relics of the past and then also we've had centuries of uh, stereotyping and phenotyping from the government so we have not been allowed to evolve in the eyes of people who are running the country. And is it your aim to do something about it? It's my aim to keep us alive, you know. It's my aim to let people know that we're alive and we come in many forms. And in my case, I'm African-American and an indigenous woman, and both of these things are equally a value. And both of these groups of people are devalued on a daily basis. Yes. If it's not with the police or laws or the media portraying negative stereotypes and never anything good about these groups of people. You know, we go from Sandra Glenn to Trayvon Martin to now the water protectors at Standing Rock who are now considered troublemakers yeah. for protecting their ancient burial sites. You know, well, we had a little something a few hundred years back, a couple hundred years back called the Trail of Tears where we the people we were trying to protect. <laughs> our sacred land east of the Mississippi, and they created something called the Indian Removal Act, which forced East Coast tribes to be relocated to Oklahoma. And back then, it wasn't oil in the pipeline, it was coal, and there was nothing we could do about it. We tried, but this is so reminiscent of that time, you know, the time of our ancestors, and here we are again today in 2017 with indigenous people trying to protect their sacred lands from their ancestors being desecrated and bones dug up and this is exactly what has happened to my ancestors. So I do feel that there's a sense of urgency in communicating this story because this is nothing new for indigenous and black people. This is nothing new. You know, we are constantly uprooted and invaded and devalued and thrown away and these things happen constantly. Then we get criticized and dismissed and, and if we make a stand then we're belittled or called troublemakers or say you're angry black woman or you're angry Indian or you can't take a joke or you're too sensitive or you're you know you can't win you see yes so there is a sense of urgency in um, people knowing what our story is and how we came to be because a lot of it has been wiped away it's no longer taught in schools you know, they've taken this away as part of the school curriculum, so no one really knows who we are. And what little they do know of Indigenous and of Black people is something negative, or even worse, that we're invisible. And that's a real danger for our children, for black and brown children being brought into the world. And when I say that, I'm, I'm not just saying only black and brown children. I'm saying there are white families who, you know, they're interracial marriages. Sure. They're interracial families. There are people adopting children of color into their families. There are white moms and dads who have children who are half native and half black that the world is seeing as black and brown children and who are, have no value. And they're all cute and exotic when they're very little. And then all of a sudden you have a 13-year-old, six-foot-tall black boy or, or dark brown boy, Indian boy, 
who the police are looking at as a threat or who maybe white women are looking at in the street whom they think they might do something to them, which is further from the truth, couldn't be further from the truth. But this is what the media is portraying. And so when this is all you see on the news, on television, or you hear on the radio, it's an unspoken thing, even if that's not what we all believe. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. But But that's all we see. And so I do feel that there's a sense of urgency to tell our story of who we are and to be an example. You know, I'm not looking to be a millionaire. I've never been a millionaire. I'm not even close to it. I've never had a, a hit song or on the charts in a, you know, or MTV or any of that kind of stuff because I felt that it was more important that the work I did was grassroots and to be an example. You know, I think young women of color need to see that there are women of color as artists, as giving service, being community activists, being great musicians, being songwriters and, and leaders in the community. So I felt that that was more important for me to be that as an example. So if I can go to a school or give a concert or be in a festival as a person of color, I think then other people can see that that's possible as well. We're talking today with musician and singer Martha Redbone. Before we get around to your Martha Redbone Roots Project, tell me just uh, briefly, what does your life look like now? Are you on the road? Do you tour? Do you perform in clubs? And what do you do in this time and place to nourish your own life? Yes, we are on the road, and we're doing a little bit of all of those things. We're doing a lot of concerts. We're developing our our musical theatrical piece and workshopping it in and around the country. And then we have a roots project that we're always on the road doing. We have a lot of irons in the fire at the moment, which is really great. Life as a musician, you always want to keep busy, so we've got some really great things happening. What nourishes your life? What do I do that nourishes my life? Yeah. I think I think every single day that I live as a, that I'm doing something towards my dream, which is having a career as a musician, I feel like I'm nourished. I'm a mother, and there was a time in the music industry, if you had a child, they said your career was over. And so, thank goodness those days are gone, and uh, the playing field has been leveled, and so we still thrive, and we have a great life making music and, and getting on the road and doing shows and performing with friends and It's just a a really, to me, I feel it's a really privileged life because not everybody has the chance to make music every single day. And it's hard work, but it's great work because you get to express yourself. And hopefully the songs that I sing and and write tell stories. I'm telling someone else's story too, not just my own. So I know that you are in midlife, and I'm wondering if this time in your life has given you any pause for thought whether or not you are doing a greater sense of reflection or renewal. And I also know you're the mom of an eight-year-old. So I'm wondering how all of that factors in in this time in your life, in being over 40. One thing I say is I know when I look at people in their 20s filled with hope and kind of trying to figure it all out and all of that kind of stuff, lots of doubt and things. I never want to go back to those days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me neither. Confusion. Yes. I feel like of every age I've ever been, and uh, I also feel, I guess, more than anything, that I've let go of a lot of stuff. And I think the freedom of letting go and the kind of strive towards finding peace within yourself, I think that's, for me, the, the personal goal. I think letting a lot of stuff that you can't, you know, they say, accept the things you cannot change and change the things you can't not accept. Now, that's kind of like my motto these days. 
And has that um, changed your career at all? It hasn't changed my career. I think my career has always been ever-evolving. Since I began singing and writing songs, I've always honored my culture. I've honored my mother who raised me, you know, and honored the family. And I feel like that has always been reflected in the work that I do. You know, like I said, I'm from Harlan County, Kentucky. So when you're from Appalachia, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do and the decisions that you make, we always say that you're honoring your family and everything that you do. So we have a phrase that we say, walk in beauty, because we're representing our, everyone who came before us and everyone who's coming after us. So the, the decisions that I make don't just affect me. They're based on who's come before me, and they're affecting my children's children. So it's not just about me who I'm representing. And again, being a mother and having a career, has that influenced you or changed the direction? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think um, when you throw a child into the mix, (laughs) you you have different priorities. Mm -hmm. Creating a safe world, a safe environment for the child is most important. And more than anything, you want them to feel safe and to feel happy. Yes. And to to know who they are and have a sense of value of who they are and where they come from. And that's what I try to do. I think having a child makes you realize as quickly as I can say these words that the world isn't about you that there's something right. greater than you, right? That's right. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. And as a, as a musician, for any musician out there who, who has a huge ego, there's nothing more humbling than becoming a parent. Humbling um, is a good the greatest, the greatest reality check for anyone. Absolutely. You know, yes. out-of-control ego. Yes. The only sad thing about it is that the people who have out-of-control egos don't know that. that they don't realize they do. <laughs> Well, I might be accused of a small portion of that, and I did realize that. So there's hope, really. Um, So let's get around to the Martha Redbone Roots Project. Why did you create it? Who did you hope would see it? Why don't we start there? We had a great number of years with uh, a rhythm and blues project that we've done. We had a rhythm and blues band, and we did like a kind of version of what we like to call, you know, indigenous funk, you know, yeah, or Native, Native Soul, and sure. we had so much fun with that. Then we took time out to have our child, and then we became parents for this time, and in that time that we had our son, we had a lot of deaths in the family and in our community, including both my aunt and my mother, and both grandparents, two aunties and my mother, mm. in a very short time. And so I kind of thought about it and realized these are people in our family that our little one would only know through photos and stories. So I felt being a musician, I thought it would be great to kind of capture the sound of where I grew up, you know, the sound of those hills and the sound of where my my mother grew up and the sound of where my grandmother grew up, which is the same area, and the sound of my great-grandmother. So we realized we were four generations more. And so having realized I had come from these generations and generations of music from this beautiful region, you know, these beautiful hills in Appalachia and the people of color, we're kind of a big melting pot. We're indigenous, we're black, we're English and Scots, Irish, and this wonderful community of people, but this 
amazing folk music has come from all of these different cultural groups. I decided to um, make a project that captured the sound for really initially to, to honor the family and for our son so that he would learn about this beautiful region that, that I call home. That's how we created the Roots Project. And who did you hope would see it? We really hoped that it was just really for our family, just to honor the family. We had no idea that it was going to travel as far as it did. We ended up making this album where we set the poetry of William Blake to the music of Appalachia because we love the language of William Blake poetry. Mm-hmm. And so we got John McEwen from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band to produce it. And then we ended up with the wonderful support of NPR and of, uh, we were on uh, Soundcheck and All Things Considered and, and New Sounds. I mean, John Schaefer was a huge champion and great supporter of our music. And, and then the response was really overwhelming. It was really, really great. And so this kind of sparked us to dig in deeper. We were offered a commission from Joe's Pub in the Public Theater to develop a piece of musical theater. I immediately kind of wanted to bring the sounds and that music of Appalachia to life and tell our family story because it's something that people aren't really too familiar with. How long has this been either in creation or traveling? Um, We've kind of been working on this for um, almost two years. We've had a couple of readings and now we're digging deeper and and making a full-fledged musical, writing towards a full-fledged musical. So, yeah, it's a, you know, these things take a take a long time. So and I'm I'm so excited about it. So ultimately, would you want to see this off off Broadway? Would you like to take it around the country? Would you like to see it in either areas of higher socioeconomic levels and inner cities? What what would your dream goal be? My dream goal would be all of the all of the above. <laughs> be all of the above. For me, this is a this is a, a family story, and um, one of the things that we've learned just from workshopping it in different areas. I mean, we've been to very rural places, you know, like uh, islands in Hawaii that don't have um, you know fancy protection screens or anything like that, and we've formed it in small community auditoriums. And we've been in really, really sophisticated, done readings in sophisticated, you know, performing arts centers. One of the things that has been consistent is that this is a story that very few people know about, people of color in coal mining and in Appalachia, which people aren't very aware of because they're no longer taught this in schools. And then uh, the other thing that was really important to us, that this is at its core a family story. So it's in in a way it's kind of it has inspired other people to kind of look at their own family history. And this is something that we didn't really um expect, you know, and it's a really beautiful thing because to me this is an American story, which means that anyone who has come here or who lives here has come from another place, as soon as you come to any new land you know, there are a set of laws and governments and all kinds of things that one must kind of follow. But at the same time, we find ways of survival and holding on to our home cultures, you know, the entire time as the world kind of moves 
around us. The world will continue going forward. And it's like, how do we hold on to who we are if we came from India or if we came from China or if we came from Italy? How do you hold on to your your home culture in a new land as the world continues to move? You know, and how do you honor that? Or do you bother to honor it? You know, so all of these questions, it was sparking. And that was really exciting. That has been really, really exciting to discover. And final question, what do you hope your legacy will be? Do you hope it's this project? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I think my, you know, I don't want my legacy to be based on just one project. I think... I think my legacy, I would like my legacy to be a lot greater than that. I think, um, you know, that I've always been um, someone who's an active member of the community. Um, I'd like my legacy to, you know, for other people to realize that they can become a part of their community, give service, honor their culture, where they came from, and encourage people to, to take part in their own Destiny. We've been talking with musician, singer, educator, songwriter Martha Redbone. Martha can be found at www.martharedbone.com. Her show, The Martha Redbone Roots Project, will be performed at St. Joseph's College in West Hartford on March 21, 2017. Thank you so much, Martha, for joining me today. Thank you, Sima. Thank you so much. I'm Sima Shapiro, your host of Four Women Over 40 Conversations with Sima. Thank you to the listener for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you take care. We'll go out with some more snippet from the Martha Redbone Roots Project. Take care. Yeah.